Welcome to Creation, Myth, or Miracle. This is your host, ex-atheist Richard Walker. Is creation a myth? There are two big reasons why people who conclude it is make that conclusion. The easy one to discuss are the atheists who, by their worldview, rule out any possibility of the supernatural, therefore there cannot possibly be a creator, therefore the creation account in the Bible clearly can't have happened. That's pretty easy. There's not much to understand there. Their worldview, their starting assumptions, simply rule it out. More difficult to deal with, and more interesting actually, are the Christians that believe in an ancient earth, that it's billions of years old. Now among those old earthers, some of them, the majority, believe in evolution as well, but not all of them believe in evolution. And I want to look at the primary reason for their common belief that the earth is 4.58 billion years old. When you're trying to determine what happened in the past, there's two types of evidence. You could have eyewitness accounts, or you could have sort of circumstantial evidence or deduction from things we observe in the present and an attempt to understand how they got that way and therefore determine what we think happened in the past. Now, biblical creationists believe in eyewitness accounts and believe that scripture is actually true and is what it says it is, and the plain reading and understanding and the traditional understanding of the creation account is that it happened in six days, and it would be a few thousand years ago based upon genealogies. However, those who don't believe that the creation account are historical ignore it as potential eyewitness testimony. Now, some ignore it because they simply don't believe the Bible's true. Others claim they believe the Bible's true, but still don't believe that it's historical, despite how it's written. They think that it has been overwhelmed by the evidence from science. So how do we look at things today and determine how long it took for it to occur in the past? So we want to talk a bit about how fast or slow do things really happen. Back on September 19th, just a few days ago, we talked about the formation of mudstones, which make up the majority, two-thirds or more, of the entire geologic column and so supposedly represent many hundreds of millions or billions of years of deposition time. Here's an example of the standard story about how mudstones form. Shale is made of compacted clay. As most readers will have noticed, clay consists of exceedingly fine particles which take a long time to settle in water. Turbulence keeps them in suspension, and consequently clay will only settle in calm water. So there you have it. Mud settles incredibly slowly, and it cannot occur unless the water is completely calm. No currents and no turbulence. However, just a very few years ago, scientists caught up to the obvious and wrote, Mudstones make up two-thirds of the sedimentary geologic column, said Indiana University Bloomington geologist Jürgen Scheiber, who led the study. One thing we are very certain of is that our findings will influence how geologists and paleontologists reconstruct Earth's past. Previously, geologists had thought that constant rapid water flow prevented mud's constituents, silts and clays, from coalescing and gathering at the bottoms of rivers, lakes, and oceans. This has led to a bias, Scheiber explains, that wherever mudstones are encountered in the sedimentary rock record, they are generally interpreted as quiet water deposits. 
Well, why did Scheiber say they'll have to reinterpret the geologic record? That's because in the lab, they flat out proved mud can settle from moving water, even rapidly moving water. The mud sticks together, creates flocules, and it settles out. It's easy to understand how it works, and you can watch the tests in the flume tanks and see it happen before your very eyes, so there's really no disputing it. In fact, Scheiber said they really expected this result because, quote, all you have to do is look around. After the Creek Hunter University's campus floods, you can see ripples on the sidewalks once the waters have subsided. Closely examined, these ripples consist of mud. Sedimentary geologists have assumed up until now that only sand can form ripples and that mud particles are too small and settle too slowly to do the same thing. So clearly geologists have false assumptions about how these things are formed. And recall the statement Scheiber make. The results call for critical reappraisal of all mudstones previously interpreted as having been continuously deposited under still waters. That's millions of years of deposition vanishing before our very eyes. I haven't yet seen any studies reappraising the understanding of the geologic column and the formation of mudstones. I suspect this will simply be ignored. If any of you listeners are aware of any such studies that are taking this factual information and applying it to their interpretation of geology and paleontology, please let me know. I'd really like to know about it. Thanks. So the majority of the geologic column was not formed the way it is usually interpreted, would not have taken nearly as long, and would form under completely different conditions than is usually assumed. We're looking at the question of how fast or slow things actually happened in the past and how well we do at understanding how they occurred by just looking at things in the present. We just talked about how mudstones can form rapidly from moving water despite the standard understanding. Anyway, here's another really interesting example that surprises us given our usual understanding of how slowly we expect things to happen. On July 15, 1942, Six P-38 Lightning fighter planes and two B-17 Flying Fortress bombers left a secret air base in Greenland, heading for Britain, but they ran into a massive blizzard and had to try to return to their base. They were unable to even do that, ran low on fuel, and eventually had to crash land on Greenland's east coast. The first plane tried to land with its wheels down, hung up a nose wheel, and flipped completely over. Fortunately, because of the snow, the crash was cushioned and the pilot was okay. The other planes saw that and landed with their wheels up and were only slightly damaged. All the crewmen were rescued by dog sled, but they had to abandon the planes, which had all just slid to a stop. This lost squadron of 1942 was basically forgotten until 1980, when a U.S. airplane dealer, Patrick Epps, and his friend architect Richard Taylor decided to look for them, Epps thought the planes would be like new. He said, all we'd have to do is shovel the snow off the wings, fill them with gas, crank them up, and fly them off into the sunset. Nothing to it. Well, they spent several years and many failed trips trying to find these planes before they finally got a real clue, and that was from radar. In 1988, they located eight large shapes beneath the ice. As they started melting their way through the ice with a steam probe, they were shocked to find out they had to keep adding more and more extensions to it because the planes were 250 feet under the ice. They'd expected just a light cover of snow and ice based upon the common public misconception about how slowly ice and snow builds up. 
And while they expected too little ice, the published accumulation rates are quite a bit lower than the almost five and a half feet per year that has occurred in the 46 years between when these planes landed and when they were discovered. Had we not known that it was July 15, 1942, we would have concluded it was much earlier based upon the amount of ice. They eventually recovered one of the P-38s and it's actually been fixed up, put back together, and is flying. They named it Glacier Girl. Now ice cores almost 10,000 feet deep have been drilled from the ice in Greenland and interpreted as showing that the ice at the bottom is either 250,000 years old or other scientists interpret it as possibly 2.4 million years old. Well, if you simply extrapolated the rate at which ice is built up on the Lost Squadron of 1942 until 1948, you would calculate that that ice core only took 2,000 years to form. Of course, that would ignore the fact that as the ice builds up, the lower layers are compressed and consume less vertical space. But it's true that it's reasonable that given about 4,000 years or so since the flood of Noah's day, that would be ample time for this amount of ice to have built up, especially if you consider the fact that it's very likely that the flood caused warmer oceans than we have today, and warmer oceans leads to a great deal more precipitation. So the early years and centuries after the flood, there would be much more ice and snow buildup. That's a topic for another day, the formation of the ice ages. At any rate, just note, don't be surprised when things happen much faster than you generally think they should, given the standard old Earth mindset. By the way, this phenomenon doesn't just occur with structures on the Earth. It occurs in astronomy and astrophysics as well. On another show, we'll talk in some detail about particular stars and objects which have gone through transition periods that we've observed where the transition in the star was much faster than the models expected it to be, thus contradicting the model's veracity. Now think about this for a moment. If a model predicts change will occur so slowly you essentially cannot ever see it or observe it, then it's pretty hard to falsify that model if you don't observe anything. However, when you then do observe changes that occur much faster than the model expected, you know what's usually done with the data? That's considered an exception to the rule and the model is hung on to, and everything else where we haven't been able to observe it continues to be interpreted in the old way. So to hang on to the old ages, we often have to treat the observed data as an exception to the rule and continue to believe that what we can't observe is how things actually occur. This is contrary to the way science works in any other domain. On today's show, we're examining the question of how fast or slow did things really happen in the past when we couldn't observe it, and how do we know? We've mentioned thus far the rapid accumulation of mudstones from moving water contrary to all expectations, and the fact that we now need to reinterpret the majority of the geologic column according to secular scientists. And we also just discussed the much more rapid than expected ice buildup on the Lost Squadron of 1942. Well, we need to talk about the elephant in the room, the really big issue, which is radiometric dating. Doesn't radiometric dating prove the Earth is billions of years old? For the purposes of our discussion, let me give you a super simplified idea of how radiometric dating works. Assume you had a room half full of white balls. 
and white balls decay. They will decay into blue balls. And this decay rate has a half-life of 100 years. How would that then work? Well, let's assume that when we start, we had 400 white balls. After each half-life period, half of whatever remaining white balls there were will have decayed, that is, turned into blue balls. So at time zero, 400 white balls. After one half-life, 100 years, there's now 200 white balls and 200 blue balls. After one more half-life, another 100 years, half of the remaining 400, the 200 white balls, half of those have decayed. You now have only 100 white balls left. After another half-life, you have only 50, etc. Each half-life, half of the white balls turns into blue balls. So if I know the rate at which this occurs, and I know how many white balls to blue balls were in the room when I started, then I can actually calculate a ratio. The white balls are called parent elements, and the blue balls are called daughter elements. If I know the ratio of those two, I could calculate how long this decay technique has been going on. Of course, I also have to assume the initial conditions. Were there any blue balls to begin with? So radiometric decay requires knowledge of initial conditions, knowledge of the rate at which the decay occurs, and knowledge of the current conditions, which is the only thing we can actually measure well. We can also measure the rate, but only on a very short period of time. Now, I'd always been taught that radiometric decay rates were absolutely fixed constants, that nothing at all could change them. You may have heard similar statements. Well, something interesting was discovered just over the last two, three years, a technique for predicting, possibly, solar activity and solar flares has been discovered. Now, we'd like to detect solar flares ahead of time because they can disrupt our communications mechanisms. But how would we know they're going to happen ahead of time? Well, it's been observed that radiometric decay rates change relative to solar flares. The hypothesis that radioactive decay rates are influenced by solar activity has been documented in at least a dozen research papers since it was first proposed in 2006. An article from Purdue University in August 2012 is titled, New System Could Predict Solar Flares Give Advanced Warning. Researchers may have discovered a new method to predict solar flares more than a day before they occur, providing advanced warning to help protect satellites, power grids, and astronauts from potentially dangerous radiation. The system works by measuring differences in gamma radiation emitted when atoms in radioactive elements decay or lose energy. This rate of decay is widely believed to be constant, but recent findings challenge that long-accepted rule. The new detection technique is based on a hypothesis that radioactive decay rates are influenced by solar activity, possibly streams of subatomic particles called solar neutrinos. This influence can wax and wane due to seasonal changes in the Earth's distance from the sun and also during solar flares, according to the hypothesis, which is supported with data published in a dozen research papers. Creationist geologist Emil Silvestru wrote about this in the December 2010 Journal of Creation. He indicated the following, Proceeding undeterred by the skepticism of most physicists, the two scientists have found that decay rate modulation is in sync with the Earth's orbit. Stanford University's Professor Emeritus Peter Sturrock then suggested that they test if the modulation was also linked to the rotation of the Sun. 
Since the neutrino output of our star is not even over its entire surface and the surface rotates over 28 days. What emerged from Brookhaven National Laboratory was a modulation pattern with a period of 33 days. Since the modulation is now proven to be real and indeed connected to some sort of 33-day solar cyclicity, it is suggested the core rotates slower than the surface because it is the core where nuclear reactions are believed to produce neutrinos. The question that remains to be answered now is how are solar neutrinos influencing radioactive decay on Earth? As Jenkins put it, quote, What we're suggesting is that something that doesn't really interact with anything is changing something that can't be changed, end quote. Or maybe neutrinos have nothing to do with this and there is some sort of unknown solar particle that causes decay modulation. The major fact is, as Fischbach put it, to summarize, what we are showing is that the decay constant is not really a constant. Now, creationist Silvestro warns other creationists not to jump to conclusions and say, that's it, the decay rate's not constant, therefore all radiometric dating techniques are invalid. That's not correct. Silvestro writes, yes, a mental barrier has been breached. There are constants that are not so constant after all, but the very small variation does not change the order of magnitude of the calculated radiometric ages. There are many other documented issues with radiometric methods that aren't part of this particular topic. But Sylvester points out the scientists are also making an unstated assumption. They're assuming that only solar neutrinos interfere with radioactive decay on Earth. Since we only have reliable decay rate records for less than half a century, there's no way to verify older anomalies. Is it implausible that other episodes existed in the geologic history of the planet that cannot be linked to our sun? This leads to another major question. Are there other sources of neutrinos? The answer is yes. We've been discussing the topic of how do we know how long things took in the unobserved past, and we just pointed out the recent surprising discovery that the decay rates of radioactive elements is affected by our relationship to the sun our distance from it, and also by cyclical cycles within the sun, its rotation on its axis, and its other activity. It appears that neutrinos from the sun are affecting nuclear decay rates here on Earth. Well, there are other sources of neutrinos than just the sun. Supernova produce neutrino fluxes, but it's currently believed that their distance from the Earth prevents those neutrinos from having a meaningful influence on decay rates. A more important and very little understood source of neutrinos would be the galactic neutrinos from the central bulge of our galaxy. Now, depending on the physics, which is still a matter of sometimes wild speculation, the neutrino flux from the central bulge can not only be significant and comparable to the sun's, but it can also be periodic. In addition, the Earth itself produces neutrinos, called geoneutrinos, from the beta decay of uranium-238 and thorium-232, a fact detected and measured through recent research. There is, in fact, hope that this can lead to accurate tomography of the planet. Some scientists have already suggested that natural nuclear fission may well exist at the center of the Earth, an idea probably triggered by the proven existence of the Oklo Natural Nuclear Fission Reactor at Gabon. Unfortunately, large experiments meant to prove a continuous or periodic neutrino flux from inside the Earth are still in the project phase. If natural nuclear fission reactors existed deep inside the Earth in the core or in the mantle, 
There's no particular reason why they could not have a pulsating character, periodic or random. It's conceivable that during pulses, massive neutrino fluxes were produced, which could have then affected radioactive decay rates of all isotopes on the planet. In Dr. Silvestru's article on this subject, his conclusion reads, The combined solar, galactic, and geoneutrinos may well have caused significant acceleration of alpha and beta decays in crustal rocks and therefore further weaken the case for radiometric dating. While there's a reason for optimism for young Earth creationist believers, there's still a long way until a solid scientific case can be built. Research, clearly focused and well-funded, is needed. Unfortunately, that cannot be expected from modern academia, which simply refuses to follow any research avenue that points to a young age of the Earth. Now, in addition to the effects of neutrinos in modifying their decay rate, there are other environmental factors which have also been shown to have an effect, such as the chemical environment. Research several years ago proved that beryllium-7 could have its decay rate affected by up to 1.5% simply by the chemical environment through the effect of electron capture. And while that effect is small, it is much greater than what was anticipated based upon theory. On a much larger scale, it was also shown a few years ago that if some radioisotope atoms have their electrons removed, that is, they're fully ionized, as would occur in a plasma, for example, then the decay rate is accelerated a billion-fold. So we have laboratory confirmation of multiple ways to influence decay rates, chemical by electron capture, ionization by electron removal, and solar and other source neutrinos, which can affect the decay rate by a few percent up to a billion-fold increase. Now compare these facts with the standard statement that most people are familiar with as an example from the Principles of Isotope Geology, second edition published by John Wiley and Sons, 1986, where the author writes, There is no reason to doubt that the decay constants of the naturally occurring long-lived radioactive isotopes used for dating are invariant and independent of the physical and chemical conditions to which they have been subjected. This type of absolute adamant statement is the foundation of the belief that radioactive decay rates calculate absolute ages, and it is known to simply be false based upon laboratory experiments. Now, aside from the question of whether the rates are constant or not, and we know they're not, there's the question of how are the calculated ages actually used by researchers when determining ages for fossils and geologic structures, etc., what do they do with these dates? In The Natural History of Fossils, published in 1980 by Holmes and Meyer Publishing, we read the following. Often it is not easy to reconcile different isotopic dates, and many age determinations which do not agree with currently accepted timescales are simply rejected as wrong without fully understanding why. Let me give you one more example. Potassium decays and argon gas is produced as a result. Potassium-argon decay dating is a technique that's often used. Now, argon is a gas. There's a volcanic tuff in Kenya, which is associated with a very famous fossil that we'll talk about later, Skull 1470. But it was already associated with mammals, which were found below it, and other fossils, including human artifacts. In 1969, Fitch and Miller performed potassium-argon dating on raw rocks from this tuft and calculated an age of 212 to 230 million years. 
but this was way too old because of the mammals and other fossils already associated with it. So they simply say, from these results it was clear that an extraneous argon age discrepancy was present. It would only be possible to date this tuff by careful extraction of undoubtedly juvenile components for analysis. My translation, this age is known to be wrong because the associated fossils can't be that old, so selectively massage the data until a good result is obtained. The truth is, argon is a gas and it can move in and out of rocks, and that allows you to simply say, well, there's excess argon. It dated too old. Or if it were too young, you'd say, there was argon loss. Very convenient. It's easy to explain away any calculated age that doesn't fit what I want. The fact that the applications for dating a sample request the expected age is a clue to how this works. There's much more to be said, but for now just know the biblical history has not been proven wrong. See creationmythormiracle.com 